Amen. That was awesome. <laughs> that, was, that was my new favorite Christmas uh, show. I love that. Uh, yeah. Hey, so if I don't know yet, my name's Spencer, and uh, hey. So let's, let's go to Mark chapter 3. If you're new here, if, you, uh, if you're just visiting tonight, we're w- just walking through the book of Mark, and it's been a, it's been a cool st- uh, study so far. For me, this study, like the book of Mark, has all been about authority. Like Jesus is in charge of everything, where he's, he's showing he's got authority over fever, over diseases and disabilities, and over demons, and he has authority over all things. He has authority to forgive sins. He's bigger than the Sabbath, and it's shaking people up. And so it kind of came to a climax at the end of, of last week where these guys we're so mad at Jesus, they're ready to kill him, and so pressure's starting to build, and that's where we pick up our story in Mark chapter 3. Let's go verse 7, and we're going to go tonight um, through verse 19. <clears throat> verse 7, it says, so Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing they came to him so at this point Jesus he's he's too big to go into towns anymore like every town he goes in people are literally breaking down buildings to get to him he's just getting too big to fit in a town so he's going bouncing out to the countryside and this crowd is just like just multiplying and multiplying every day it's bigger and bigger and bigger it reminds me of the Collet Ridge fire that was over here uh, a couple weeks ago, where every morning, you know, you kind of, I'd, I'd call in, because it was kind of close to my house, so I'd call in, just get a little update, I live over there off Collet Creek Road, so it was pretty close, so I'd call in, get a little update, and every day it'd be like, yesterday it was 100 acres, and today it's 700, and you're like, oh shoot, and you call again, it's like, it's 1,000, now it's 3,000, now it's 5,000, and it's just every day, it's just that's how I picture the crowd doing every day. You know, some commentators said that there's more than 10,000 people following Jesus around in the wilderness at this point. And they're too big for a town. Remember, they're tearing down buildings. They're desperate to get to Jesus. Why? Let's go on. Verse 9. It said, Jesus told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Because he had healed many people, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Anybody in here claustrophobic? Oh man, I am. Uh, I do not like being confined into a small space. And so I can't imagine a crowd that's so tight that it's trying to crush you. I, that would be... Okay, so we went to a Virginia Tech football game this season. And it, was, it was great. And we got to see a few plays at the beginning of the game. And then, uh, it, and then lightning started crashing. Uh, and so basically in the, in the first quarter of the game, they're like, hey, everybody, I want you to leave your seats and I want you to go down to these tunnels, kind of the, the, the walkways that are underneath the stadium, which, great, safety first. But that's like 66,000 people that are all in these stands. They're wanting to crowd into these tunnels underneath the thing. And, and so... We're like, okay, great. So at first we were in a good spot. It wasn't too crowded, whatever. Well, we decided we want to go through this whole big tunnel of people to go meet up with our folks on the other side. And that was a mistake because we start making our way through, and it's me and my wife Amy and Hack, and we're making our way through this crowd. And I don't know how they did it, but somehow they went, 
and went all the way through it. And so I'm a little bit behind these guys, and all of a sudden the crowd just goes and closes in on me. And I can't, like I can't move. I'm, I'm, my chest is touching the person in front of me's back, and this person's chest is touching my back, and there's people's shoulders touching my shoulders, and the whole crowd's just like gridlocked. I have thousands of people down there, and nobody's going anywhere. And then people start getting mad and pushing. And it was the most, like, it was an hour and 15 minutes that I stood there just like, don't freak out, don't freak out. Because everybody's just, every once in a while you get a crowd of drunk guys like, let's go. And they're just trying to push all the way through it. And then, I, I mean, it's getting, like, panicky. And I thought about that when I was thinking about this, this verse here. What if that whole crowd, like, that whole crowd didn't have anywhere to go. They're just trying to wait out the lightning. But what if you had a crowd that big that was pushing in on you? Like, it says, He said, hey, guys, y'all get a boat ready because this crowd's trying to crush me because all these people, why are they trying to touch Jesus? The healing. These guys are desperate. Like, they're they're trying to, there's no urgent care at this point, you know, And, and they live in a culture where diseases that we have a cure for, they're rampant here. Life expectancy is short. So, so many Thousands of people have come to see the show, but a lot of these people, they're here because they've got, they got desperate needs. And I don't know, I don't know if, if you've ever had to care for a, a kid of yours that's sick. Like, you get to a point where you're like, I'll do anything. I will do anything to get this kid healed. All right, while we were in that crowd at the, the Virginia Tech game, I, this one little girl passed out. And it was like panic because they were like, we got a kid, we got a kid. And they're shoving, I mean shoving because they're desperate to get this kid through there. And I'm imagining this is the scene when Jesus is out there near the ocean here and this crowd's getting desperate. People are like, we got a kid, we got to get healed. And they're pushing and pushing and pushing. The irony is at this point, it doesn't seem like many people are here to, to like listen to Jesus' teaching. You know? They're not here for a great sermon, as good a teacher as he is. But there's few people that are really trying to like submit to the message and listen to it. Probably there's a lot of people didn't even know that they, what they really needed. You know, this happens sometimes where kind of like our physical needs will start to kind of cloud our spiritual needs. I don't know if y'all have ever been to one of those, in one of those points in life where you're like, struggling so hard financially or you know you got some sickness that that's what you wake up thinking about that's what you go to bed thinking about and it just seems so oppressive you're like if I can just get this one thing fixed then I'll be good to go and Jesus has so much compassion he see even though this isn't their deepest need he's still like hey I'll, I'll jump in the boat I'll stay here as long as it takes I'll fix you know whatever's going on with these guys but He knows that that his real mission here is to rescue souls. That's the real deep need. That even if he fixes legs and fixes diseases, even if our financial problems are fixed, we'll still be needy. Jesus is here to meet something in our souls. And he's showing he's clearly got authority over the body and authority over demons even. We'll see that later on in the passage. But I think very few people in the crowd are, are asking why. Like, why is he fixing legs? Why has he got authority to do this? Why is he doing miracles? How does he do this? I think very few people in the crowd are really stopped, and some are, but I think some people are stopping to ask the key question in life, which is, who is Jesus, and what is our response to him? That's what all of us have to come to grips with. That's what all these guys do, too. But, you know, for all of us, we're so naturally focused on the physical and not the spiritual. Really. I mean, you see this in the shows that we watch, in the podcasts that we listen to. You see it in even how we pay our professions. 
ones that care for the body, they're on the high end of the pay spectrum. That's not a knock on like pay scales. That's just a statement on what we value as a culture. We value and prioritize the physical where Jesus is prioritizing the soul. He knows what we really need. So why is he doing these miracles? Jesus is showing absolute authority over the physical to demonstrate he has authority over the spiritual. He's showing he's totally in charge. You look at the man, uh, those of y'all that were here a couple weeks ago when we did that story of, you know, Jesus is in the house and they let that guy through the roof. What does he say when he let, that guy gets led all the way down, these guys, his legs don't work and his friends are letting him down the roof and Basically, he gets all the way down to Jesus, and Jesus says something totally unexpected. You expect him to say, oh, man, I see this faith. Your legs are fixed. But instead, he says, your sins are forgiven. He's showing the reason he's doing miracles is not just to fix the physical. He's here for something deeper and more real. He's here for the soul-level healing that, that was available then, and it's available today. Verse 11. Whenever the unclean spirits, that's demons, whenever the unclean spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And Jesus strictly ordered them not to make him known. Okay, we don't talk about demons a lot. It's kind of a weird topic, but the Bible does talk about them a good bit. But so here you've got, it says, whenever unclean spirits saw them. So how are the demons coming to Jesus? They're inhabiting people. So how, how does that work? Like probably the possessed people aren't bringing these unwilling demons along. Maybe it's friends that are bringing their possessed friends. You know, some people even think maybe the demons themselves are driving the people they're possessing to Jesus because they're so fascinated with Jesus in the flesh here. I don't know. We're going to come back to that. But their response, whenever these demons, these fallen angels, when they see Jesus face to face, their response is pretty universal where they fall down and say, you're the son of God. That's wild. Why do they say that? Why, why do they do this? Why, why are they coming before and falling down and saying, you're the son of God? I think three, three maybe reasons, all right? The first one is maybe they couldn't help themselves. Maybe they're crying out just in sheer terror and sheer awe because, remember, they used to be angels. They had seen Jesus in all his glory. Maybe when they come and stand before him, they're just freaking out and going, oh, you, you, you're him. Second option is some commentators think that somehow names are important for demons, like it, that demons believe that if they say the name of Jesus that somehow they have some authority, kind of like Adam naming the animals in the garden. Maybe. Why is Jesus letting this happen? I think for sure that for everybody in the crowd, just to see demons submitting in some way to Jesus, that shows his authority, right? The fact that demons weren't saying, who are you? But the demons were going, oh, shoot, I know exactly who you are. Please, other places it says, don't destroy us. Please don't destroy us. That has some weight in this crowd here who only think about the physical. It's able to bump their minds to the spiritual. So why did Jesus say, it says, 
when the demons cried out, they said, you're the son of God. And Jesus strictly ordered them not to make him known. I always wonder, like, why, man? Just let those guys go. Let them preach. Like, if demons are saying, hey, that's God, everybody's going to listen. But I think there's real practical reasons for Jesus to be like, no, I probably don't want a demon doing my preaching for me, right? And so I think the first reason is demons, yeah, they might have been persuasive, but they're inaccurate. They're at least deluded on how the future is going to go, right, to say the least. Maybe Jesus didn't want the confusion of people thinking they're on the same team. Hey, no, y'all don't go preaching for me. I'm good. I got this. The second reason, I think, is maybe because the crowd would hear the demons preach and try to forcibly make him king. I don't know. It wasn't Jesus' time yet. In either case, Jesus demands that they be quiet and they obey. Here's what I want us to pause and just think about for a second. It's such a weird scene here where Jesus, the crowds are pushing in so much, and there's Pharisees and demons. Can we just pause for a second and think about the stress and pressure that Jesus was under? Just for this scene, just kind of like take a snapshot and think about the pressures that, that Jesus was facing. I know this is a season of year that sometimes a lot of us feel a lot of pressure. There's a lot of goodness, but there's also a lot of squeezes, a lot of strains. But think for a minute just like the, the stresses that Jesus was under because he shows us how to deal with them. I want to list a few real quick. The first one we talked about last week, which is, you know, he's got a crowd that's actually literally trying to kill him. We talked about last week, there's this group of Pharisees and a group of Herodians who are natural enemies. These guys don't like Rome. These guys love Rome, but they've teamed up together because Jesus is a mutual threat to their theology and their politics. So they're like, uh-uh, that guy's got to go. So what they do is they start, they start scrutinizing and trying to trap Jesus in everything he does. Everywhere he goes, they're peeking through the blinds. Every field he walks through, they're watching. Oh, is he eating some of that stuff on the Sabbath? How many steps he take today? What's he saying right there? What does he mean by that? I mean, can you imagine how exhausting that would be? To have somebody scrutinizing every little word you say? It, may, it will wear you out. We, uh, so I work at Snowbird, camp that's here. And y'all know three years ago went through COVID. And that was a weird time to be a youth camp with big crowds of people in a small town it really was because no one really knew what our regulations were at camp and I'm in charge of risk management here at camp and so a lot of the stressors came to me where people would would call down and be like hey uh, we hear that snowbirds got uh what was it oh oh, that y'all got tour buses of kids from New York City that y'all are busing in every day and we're like what where'd you hear that and they'd be like Seriously, we had people coming and driving through camp to see if we were having any sort of meetings, kind of looking in, like, are y'all got 50 people in there, more or less, or whatever, what y'all doing out there, how many people at Snowbird got, it, it was stressful just to have that many eyes on you, just being like, oh, we're doing what we're supposed to, like, everybody's scrutinizing, hey, you should have more masks and the other crowd was saying hey you should have less masks and uh, you know it's just like trying to please everybody it was just thinking about here where where Jesus is this isn't just like COVID stuff these people are trying to kill him they're scrutinizing him because they want to throw him in jail and torture him and kill him there's huge stress from that but not just that he's got this tens of thousands crowd that's following his every move everywhere he goes so like Bertie said last week he's got the stress of celebrity he can't just go out and get something to eat and walk here and walk there he's got people wanting something from him everywhere he goes on top of that he's the vaccine he's the cure 
People are clawing at him. He's the one that can fix my kids. People are tunneling literally through the roof to get to him. People are traveling from other countries. They're not going to be denied. They're going to be like, do I travel all this way? No, I'm, I'm, I'm going to touch Jesus. I'm going to see Jesus. Tens of thousands of people doing that. That is pressure. Not in our chapter tonight, but next week we'll look at there's two verses where his own family try to go out and kidnap Jesus and bring him back because they think he's crazy. That's pressure. Have you ever felt not supported by your family? Here, they're trying to, to steal him away and kidnap him because they think he's crazy. So you got these people trying to kill you. You got these people trying to touch you. You got these people trying to crush you. You got these people trying to kidnap you. On top of that, you got demons. What, what kind of pressure does that bring? You think about that as a stressor on Jesus. That's a huge amount of stress that Jesus is facing here. And to be real, none of the scene was like his primary goal. Like his end goal wasn't to fix people's legs. It was to heal hearts. It was to die for our real need, which is we're bad and we need his goodness. So much stress. I want to look at three things that Jesus did. And I think I, I need to learn from this because I'm naturally a stressy person. So I need to learn from this. But I think we can see three different things that Jesus did with all that pressure on top of him. Verse 13, let's look at it. And Jesus, all this stress, he went up on the mountain and he called to them, called to him those who he desired and they came to him. All right, I want to give three things that Jesus did, three things we can learn from him with that much stress on top of him. Number one, Jesus got away. Jesus got away. He distanced himself from the work. He distanced himself from the crowd, and he found a quiet place on the mountain. Now, obviously, ain't none of us under the same strain as Jesus. No matter what you're facing, it's this big compared to what Jesus is facing here. Now, I'm not trying to minimize anyone's problems, but in light of what he's facing here with imminent murder and demons chasing after him and crowds of thousands trying to touch him, we're my problems pale in comparison, and he got away. But y'all know, you got crazy lives. You got work. Some of y'all have kids, and that's work. And you got kids' sports, and you've got bills to pay, and you got relationship troubles and holiday stressors, and there's a lot of things you feel like you're going to crack. I mean, we can learn from Jesus and get to a quiet place. I mean, so often we do the opposite. At the end of a long day, we had a stressful day, we retreat to more noise. Y'all do this? I know I'm guilty of this. I retreat to more noise. At the end of the day, things are stressful. I'll just jump on my phone and scroll through for a little while. I'll watch a show and just bring more noise, and I'm really just piling up the stress instead of dealing with it. I read a, a cool passage that Kent Hughes gave from a ten, Tim Hansel book about getting to a quiet place. He said this, If I'd only forgotten future greatness and looked at the green things and reached out to those around me and smelled the air, and ignored the forms and the self-styled obligations and heard the rain on my roof and put my arms around my wife, perhaps it's not too late. We need to pause and enjoy just the small glories of life, which helps us to reframe its stressors. First thing, Jesus got away. Second thing, when Jesus was, was in such an intense squeeze, Jesus prayed. When he went up on the mountain here, the same passage in Luke, it describes the same event, and it, it basically tells us that Jesus prayed all night long here. See, getting alone, it's not the full picture. We know that rest is not the same thing as inactivity. 
we need to be with the Lord to get real rest for our souls. You can do nothing and not be any less stressed. You need to meet with the Lord in prayer. E. Stanley Jones says this, prayer is a time exposure to God. So I expose myself to God asking less and less for things and more and more for himself. For having him, I have everything. He gives me what I need for character, conduct, and creativeness, so I'm rich with his riches. I'm strong in his strength. I'm pure in his purity, and I'm able in his ability. Jesus set the example. If prayer was that important to Jesus, it needs to be for me. The third thing Jesus did in a time of stress is Jesus shared his burdens with others. The Christian life, man, it wasn't meant to be lived alone. You need the church. You need the body. So the hand can't save the foot. I have no need of you. Jesus gathered together around him a group. Now he's going to teach him, and he's going to send him out, which is different than what we do. But this, this is encouraging, and it's helping us to share our burdens. Jesus set the example for us. So let's look at that group that he gathers around him in verse 14. It says, and Jesus appointed 12 who we also named apostles. Y'all heard of these guys? The 12 disciples, also called 12 apostles. Two different words there. Disciples has this idea of more like a learner, and apostles has more of the idea of someone who's sent out. So you can kind of see what their job is. These guys are here to learn and then to get sent out. And it says that here. He appointed 12, who we also named apostles, so they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, this group of guys is wild. They're weird. They're totally unqualified for this work, 100%. And it's, it's the opposite of what you would think. Like, usually in these days, people would follow a rabbi, a great teacher. Everybody's calling Jesus rabbi, rabbi. But in those days, you would choose a rabbi. Here, Jesus is choosing these guys. Usually, you would choose a rabbi after you've been to levels of school. These guys had no school. It's a wild little group here. And Jesus is going to train them, and he's going to send them out. Look at, look at the group. Verse 16. And Jesus appointed the twelve, Simon, to who he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to who he gave, gave the name, I don't know how to pronounce that, Boanerges. Uh, that is the sons, we'll just call them the sons of thunder. Uh, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Y'all heard this group before? The reason we can't name, if, if anybody were to come to you or me and be like, name the 12 disciples, we'd be like, oh, Peter, John, James, like after that it gets weird because these guys all have like nicknames and second names and -and so-and-so's brothers this and that but it's a pretty weird group of guys Uh, let me just go through them real quick now pause for a second he's already called these guys out of their profession they've already left their boats to follow but here it's like this is an official like commissioning we're going forward right where this is this is the group here you got Simon, who's also called Peter. You remember, he's a, an impulsive fisherman. He's the guy who denied Jesus, but he's a, he becomes a church leader. He writes two letters, and he gives content for this book, and history tells us that he died by crucifixion, like Jesus, for his faith. His brother actually followed Jesus first. He's the one that brought Peter. His name's Andrew, and he's one of Jesus' first disciples. Then you got these two brothers. So you got Simon and Andrew that are brothers. Then you got James and John that are brothers. These dudes are hot-headed. 
They're fishermen, and they're so hot-headed that one time this village was, like, inhospitable to them, and they're like, hey, Jesus, let's call down fire and burn them suckers alive. And Jesus is like, hey, all right, Thunder Boys, like, chill out. It's funny because Jesus is the nickname giver here, which, to me, we don't get a lot of glimpses into Jesus' personality. But here you get a few glimpses because you see, oh, he's the nickname giver. He's like, oh, the sons of thunder when these guys are acting all fiery-headed. Oh, Simon, we're going to call you the rock. Like, his personality shines through a little bit, which is really cool. You got Philip, who brought Bartholomew to Jesus. He's from the same town as Andrew and Peter. You got Bartholomew, who Bartholomew's sharp because when he met Jesus, he's like, hey, nothing good comes out of Nazareth, which is where Jesus is from. And you expect Jesus to get offended, and Jesus is like, that man can't tell a lie. And you're like, oh, Jesus got jokes. This is great. If you ever read that, he says, here's an Israelite in whom there's no guile. He's basically saying, my boy, don't lie. He's right. Ain't nothing good come out of Nazareth. You just get little glimpses of Jesus' personality. <clears throat> Matthew is a tax collector. He would have been hated by the rest of the group because he's teaming up with the Romans to oppress his own people. Thomas, everybody remembers him as doubting Thomas. But we don't remember that when Jesus wanted to go to, to a hard place, Thomas is the one who stood up and said to the other boys, let us go too that we can die with Jesus. He's bold. You have James and Thaddeus. We don't know about uh, those guys a lot, but they're, they're faithful. You got Simon the Zealot. He probably was a part of this group that were a group of radicals that wanted to overthrow Rome. And then you got Judas who betrayed Jesus, who's later replaced by Matthias, who's faithful. It is a weird group of guys. It's a diverse group of guys. You got mostly blue collar, a couple of white collar guys. Some of these guys would have been enemies. Think a tax collector who worked with Rome and a zealot who wants to kill Romans. I mean, it's a wild group. If you ever watch that series, The Chosen, it, it does that dynamic really well. It's really cool the way it does that. Here, here's something that's, that's interesting and cool, though. These guys aren't exceptional. They're not educated. They're, they're not theologians. They're not religious leaders. They're just ordinary guys. Some of them have really embarrassing backgrounds. Some of them make really terrible mistakes. They have big-time character flaws, and Jesus uses them to change the world, to change the world. For real, don't, don't ever think you're not useful to the Lord. Seriously. Don't ever think you're not useful to the Lord. Like, man, I got nothing to offer but, like, mistakes. Great, you're in good company. Look at these guys. Anything we bring to the table usually gets in the way anyway. You know, there's an old preacher saying that says he doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. Man, these men are going to go on to be the foundation of the church, the actual writers of the Bible, messengers to generations. There used to be 12 tribes of Israel. Now he's doing something new. These are the 12 guys that are going to spread the work of the Lord. It's huge. Let me close with this. Just a couple of thoughts on this last part of the passage. So he, he, he calls these guys, there's a list of these guys, and that's the end of our passage for tonight. But I want to just focus in as we close just on the one phrase that the demon said. Because I think it frames the whole book of Mark really nice. Remember, what did the demons say when they encountered Jesus? That's the Son of God. All right. The book of Mark starts out like that. The whole book of Mark, if you look at the first sentence in there, it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the whole book is going to lay out evidence that Jesus is that. He's the Son of God. In chapter 1, when Jesus gets baptized, God says, this is my beloved Son. 
Here in chapter 3, when the demons fall down, they say, this is the Son of God. In chapter 5, when demons fall down, they say, this is the Son of God. What that means is, heaven and hell are declaring, this is the Son of God. Now, men don't get it. In Mark chapter 6, they say, isn't that the carpenter? Isn't that Mary's kid? In Mark 9, Peter, James, and John go up on a mountain, and God himself speaks audibly, and you know the phrase that he says? This is my son. Listen to him. In chapter 13, Jesus says, I am the son of God. It's crazy because the disciples a lot of times don't get it. The people that follow the crowd, they don't, that follow Jesus in the crowd, they don't get it. The disciples even ask at one point, who is this? The wind obeys him. The waves obey him. Who is this? And we know that they confess. But the book of Mark builds to a climax. It starts out saying, Jesus, the Son of God, and everything's testifying, the Son of God, the Son of God, the Son of God. And it finally builds to Jesus on the cross. And when he breathes his last breath and breathes it out, there's a Roman soldier, unexpected guy, he's standing there, and he says, truly, this is the Son of God. And it's such a cool moment. That's what the whole book's been building to because the whole book is meaning to bring us to the same response. We're supposed to read these stories and see, oh, that's what he's doing. The reason he has authority to fix legs, the reason he has the authority over the Sabbath and demons and the supernatural is that that's no ordinary man, that's God. And it's to bring us to that same moment the, uh, that the centurion had when we see his sacrifice and his love for us that we would say, surely this is the Son of God. I'll read the last part of John, another one of the Gospels. It said, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the point of the book of John. That's the point of the book of Mark. He's writing so that we would recognize the reason he has authority to do these things because he's God's son. And that by believing in him, we can have life in his name. So here's what's wild. Jesus was in charge of all things, but he chose to die to pay for the wrong things that we've done, to fix what's really wrong on the inside. Because our problems are not physical or financial, they're spiritual. And I just want to say, if you're in here tonight and you think, Man, Jesus doesn't love me. You're wrong. You're wrong about that. He does. Or if you're in here and you think, I'm sure that Jesus loved me, but now I'm kind of too far gone. I've done too many bad things. I've said too many wrong things. If you think that, you're wrong. There's nothing that you've done, no, no screw-up you've made that's stronger than his love, than his grace. How do I know? Well, he's got you here tonight to hear it. He brought you here tonight to hear the message that he's got authority over all things. And what he says he wants to do is to give you new life. That's what God wants to do because he loves you. He can heal what's really broken inside of us. If you don't know about that, if you want to hear more about that, I'd be glad to talk to you about that. Or anybody that goes to church here would be glad to talk to you about that. Um, let's pray. Jesus, thanks for these men and women that are in here. I thank you for tonight where we can pause and look at your word. I thank you for tonight that we can listen to those kids sing. So awesome and fun, Lord. Thank you for Pinwheel and um, for helping those kids get their grades up and give them the truth as well. And well, 
I pray that we'd recognize you for who you are, that we'd see the miracles, see what the demon's response is to you, that we'd recognize with the centurion, surely this is the son of God, and that we'd submit to you in a way that heals what's really broken on the inside. Our bigger problems that are bigger than our stress, that are bigger than our finances, or bigger than our sicknesses, I pray we come to you in faith and that you give us life in your name. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.